This is the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast from Advanta IRA, where we show you how to explore investments beyond Wall Street and open your eyes to new options for your portfolio. It's time to take control and give yourself the freedom to choose where you invest your money. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today on the download, uh, I'd like to try to keep it away from doom and gloom, but unfortunately, that is kind of the uh, nature of the news cycle right now with the uh, stock markets. But we'll try to bring a few uh, highlight points, but we'll, you know, most of the major points today are going to be... Uh, a little bit dour, uh, to say the least. Uh, stock futures uh, have started to climb a little bit uh, in overnight trading uh, as the recording on May 10th of this podcast. Uh, but essentially, this follows a three-day massive sell-off from uh, almost all equity markets. So the New York Stock Exchange, the NASDAQ, the Dow Jones Industrial Average, the Standard & Poor's uh, 500. It has uh, been quite the, uh, <clears throat> quite the few days of trading starting back on about Wednesday of last week. Uh, some of the biggest losers in this uh, major sell-off were large tech companies, but specifically also logistic companies. Uh, between the companies of Uber, DoorDash, and Lyft, they lost almost $9 billion in market capitalization in about a three-day span. So uh, looking at those companies, is just kind of a litmus test for the general uh, uh, health of the entire market. It was uh, quite a bloody few days in the uh, trading, trading markets. But that's not to say there weren't some highlights. But uh, unfortunately, those were kind of few and far between to look at. Uh, Tesla is kind of has an interesting uh, new caveat on uh, manufacturing. We talked about the fact that they had shut down their Shanghai production uh, due to COVID restrictions being in place, being imposed by the uh, Chinese government, and then had started a uh, kind of closed loop uh, operational system with uh, no outside uh, and no outside parties coming in to try to uh, insulate the factory from uh, the effects of coronavirus. However, Tesla, as of today, has announced that they are suspending Shanghai production, but not from COVID, but from renewed supply chain issues. So this is definitely kind of a concerning thing to look at, especially for the fact that we are just now starting to see the ramp up of domestic uh, vehicle production coming back in the United States. We're starting to see the crazy highs for uh, used car prices starting to come down and the availability of new cars starting to come up, which is great news, especially for middle America that have been struggling to uh, acquire and purchase new cars during the pandemic with used car prices going up almost 70% in most cases. So seeing this concerning, uh, call it a canary in a coal mine from Tesla in China, because as we know, Southeast Asia and a lot of Asian countries produce a lot of microprocessors, which have been a big pain point, especially during COVID for production of vehicles, mainly the computers in those vehicles. So hopefully this is maybe just a blip on the radar and not something that is going to be a uh, persistent issue. So we can always just, we can only just cross our fingers and hope that this is not again, ind indicative of something much larger. Crypto markets have just been uh, um, <laughs> have been bloodied is kind of the best way to, uh, to, to put it. Um, they, uh, they, they've been getting hammered. Uh, Bitcoin has fallen over 55% in six months and the markets have shed over $800 billion, crypto markets in general, not just Bitcoin, but across the entirety of the crypto markets have shed almost 800 billion. That's 800 with three commas behind it. 
billion in a month. So in about 30 days, that's how much value and capitalization has been lost from crypto markets and Bitcoin having fallen over fallen by over half its value in six months. Now, this is not to say that I uh, you know, inherently think that cryptocurrency is a, a bad investment. It is certainly something that is going to, I, I really do feel is going to be with us for the long haul. Uh, but it does very well illustrate how volatile these markets can be and just how careful investors need to be when investing in these markets. Uh, it is something that a lot of investors and traders have been uh, have been promoting that don't invest anything in crypto that you're not 100% willing to lose. I think this goes to illustrate that very well here is that although it can be an extremely lucrative investment, you can see a very volatile and abrupt market changes with cryptocurrency. So just take that for what it's worth. And then also looking at uh, tertiary stocks to cryptocurrency, not just cryptocurrency itself, Trading giant Coinbase shares have tumbled almost 80% from November highs among the trading crypto woes. So you have Bitcoin losing over half its value in six months, the market shedding $800 billion in a month in cryptocurrency, and the largest in the largest uh, exchange platform that is publicly traded shedding 80% of its share value on publicly traded markets from November. It definitely goes to show just how crazy and volatile these markets can be. So just beware. Uh, it's something certainly that if you are interested in, in getting involved in, maybe now is a good time to buy in. If you were... Uh, you know, invested in it and have sustained heavy losses, you know, that's definitely a different uh, consideration to give. But if you're looking to get into cryptocurrency, who knows, now might be a good time to come in and, and buy some stuff uh, that is relatively depressed values. But again, looking at how volatile these markets have been, investors really need to be careful when jumping into cryptocurrency markets, as it can be a very, uh, uh, it, can be, it can be a very wild pendulum ride from from high to low in those types of markets. Uh, in, in seeing slides, we're also looking at precious metals have also slid. Uh, silver has been on about a month long slide as the dollar has risen in value. Uh, the dollar rising in value mainly in part to the Federal Reserve's decision to adjust interest rates and uh, lending pegs. So we're seeing the dollar starting to rise as they are trying to take some inflationary measures and put some uh, backing in place to kind of help alleviate uh, inflationary measures. So silver and gold have been seeing a slight uh, decline in the past few months, but certainly nothing as dramatic as things like um, big tech companies, Uber, cryptocurrency. Uh, but now I did promise that we would end on a little bit of a high note. So we have uh, pharmaceutical giant Pfizer buying Biohaven Pharmaceuticals, sending Biohaven Pharmaceuticals prices shoring, soaring by as high as 40% in day trading yesterday. So uh, still plenty of money in biotech. Uh, I guess the sale of the uh, Pfizer um, prophylaxis for COVID and other uh, uh, areas have been doing very well. So seeing them acquiring other companies, maybe it's the time to look into making some plays in biotech. So still acquisitions being made in that sector. And the meme stock darling AMC, uh, I found this one kind of interesting. I kind of wanted to end with it. Uh, has Stock has rising after beating quarterly estimates. And that really, uh, especially being a, a younger investor, uh, it does make me smile a bit when the power of the internet and a Reddit subthread uh, can help prop up a 
a stock and actually uh, make people surprised when something good happens with it. So seeing AMC share prices rise after beating quarterly estimates with people getting it back out there and going to the movies and seeing the company uh, do well from almost uh, fault from almost being at the doorstep of going out of business during COVID uh, does put a little bit of a smile on my face. So it's good to see that the movie theater giant AMC uh, has beat its quarterly estimates and hopefully uh, they continue to be around because I know I certainly do like uh, getting out and going to the movies. So that's uh, kind of been it for the markets. Uh, I will tell people that uh, it's it's now a good time to <laughs> take a good evaluation of your positions and make sure that you have shored up any loose ends and are uh, kind of ready to weather any types of storms that might be coming because if the markets of the past three days have been indicative of that, it uh, could be a bumpy ride for the next little bit. So this has been The Download. Thanks for joining. Today on the what is, what is an exchange-traded fund? An ETF or exchange-traded fund is traded on an open exchange just like stocks are. However, the price of ETF shares will change throughout the day trading as shares are bought and sold on the market. This is because an ETF will track particular indexes, sectors, or commodities, or other assets, but unlike mutual funds, ETFs can be purchased or sold on a stock exchange the same day that it same way a regular stock can. An ETF can be structured to track anything from the price of an individual commodity to a large diversified collection of collection of securities. ETFs can even be purchased to track specific investment strategies. This being very interesting as a ETF is a type of fund that holds multiple underlying assets unlike un, un, unlike Stocks, which are just one, because there are multiple assets within an ETF, they can be a popular choice for diversification. ETFs can thus contain many types of investments, including stocks, commodities, bonds, or a mixture of investment types. And an ETF can own hundreds or thousands of stocks across various industries, or it could be isolated to one particular industry or sector. This is why investors who favor diversification tend to really gravitate towards ETFs. This has been... The what is. Hi, and welcome to another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and today, although we don't have a guest on today, I would like to talk to people about something that is uh, becoming a little bit more popular, especially with the Fed changes to uh, interest rates and interbank lending is certainly making the once uh, prevalent, um, you know, let's just call it almost free money out there, uh, much more tight and much more expensive. So where investors going to look to to acquire financing, especially for maybe some tighter deals? Well, certainly private money. Uh, now, uh, most people think of private money as hard money, and that can typically be rather expensive. But what people tend not to realize is that there are lots of avenues for acquiring financing out there. And if you understand where you can actually get money for uh, a deal that you have, you know, especially in the context of investing in real estate, you know, the more powerful you can be when it comes to your investing strategies. Now, what a lot of... Uh, people that uh, want to invest in real estate understand, especially if they're doing it on a person-to-person -person basis, you know, maybe not um, 
you know, maybe the more HGTV crowd, but especially with the people that we deal with here at Advanta IRA, uh, you know, are using people's tax qualified money out of their IRAs to help finance deals. Now, especially if you're not necessarily familiar with how this works, essentially you can take your IRA and turn it into a lending institution uh, for lack of kind of a better way to put it, but you can take your IRA and lend it out to people and hold secured or unsecured or equity participation notes or all sorts of different types of agreements within an IRA and grab all of those great tax benefits completely tax exempt or tax free. So when when we're looking at the context of this, you're not just going to be limited to investing in real estate with a self-directed IRA or other types of, let's say, more traditional uh, securitized assets. Uh, what we see a lot of time with people, especially if they're concerned about things like liability, is people tend to gravitate towards lending money out of their IRA. Now, just to kind of give an overview, uh, because a lot of people you know, think uh, you know, IRAs typically are just going to be uh, set into, like I said, securitized assets, stocks, bonds, mutual funds. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you know, you're probably at least tangentially familiar with the fact that you can invest in alternative assets. And a lot of those alternative assets are real estate centric. So we're thinking about things like single family homes, actually going out and buying a piece of property with an IRA. And that can be a short term rental a uh, long-term rental. It can be a rehab project. You can buy things like condos, uh, something that's near and dear to my heart, mobile homes and parks, tax deeds and all sorts of other stuff. But you can also invest in paper assets. So lending your IRA out and not actually holding direct title to something, which is giving you the advantage of being able to set the parameters of your IRA investment. So being able to be a little bit more hands-off and a little bit more removed from the deal itself, which helps to insulate your IRA from things like liability having to deal with tenants and toilets and all the other things that go into actually owning a piece of property directly, while still also getting to maintain the nice security of the fact that your IRA is invested in something secured by real estate. So you can certainly lend your IRA out and make a note to someone and uh, hold the first position or second position or any type of other creative position that you deem fit for your IRA uh, with a mortgage loan, uh, you can also invest in things like tax deeds, tax deeds and tax liens and hold uh, government issued paper. Uh, you don't have to necessarily have security at all if you want to make a note out of your IRA. You can do it unsecured. Now, granted, this is going to be a significantly riskier uh, position to be in with your IRA because if the borrower defaults, then you're going to have to enter into some type of lawsuit with the IRA to sue that individual for non-performance on that note. So while you certainly can definitely make more money lending out unsecured, you know, you definitely have to make sure that your ducks are in a row because you are going to be taking on a significantly higher degree of risk with uh, unsecured notes. And you can lend to entities, especially startup companies. You can take on debentures. Uh, you can take on option contracts, assignments, uh, JV agreements, uh, accounts receivable. There's all sorts of interesting things that you can do as the IRA holder to to really kind of, uh, you know, cement a, uh, a solid lending platform within your IRA. And the cool thing about doing this with self-directed IRAs is that you as the client get to pick any and all direction with that. You know, people like us here at Advanta, we're not necessarily going to be pointing you in one direction versus another. It's completely up to you. So being able to kind of take the reins and really steer that ship is really a kind of a cool aspect about self-direction insofar as that if you have researched something or maybe let's say you do it personally and you feel very comfortable with it and you want to expand that, um, expand 
that strategy to your IRA, you can definitely do it. And it's not something that's going to necessarily make you recreate the wheel in order to actually do it effectively. Now, some of the really cool things about uh, mortgage lending, or just let's say lending in general with an IRA is that you as the uh, IRA client and IRA owner get to really choose everything with regard to about how your uh, retirement plan grows. So you get to choose the amount borrowed, you know, you get to negotiate with a borrower and say, Hey, here's how much I'm willing to lend you. You get to choose the rate at which your IRA grows. <clears throat> now, obviously this has to be something in line with what the borrower can pay. What's a competitive rate, what's going to make the deal good, but you get to essentially choose exactly how much money you're going to make on the deal. You get to peg the interest rate. Now, what I will say is a caveat to that is that any state that you're going to be lending in. So basically wherever the borrower is and, and domiciled, you need to always make sure that you're checking what are called usury rates. So that's going to be a cap on the maximum amount of interest or benefit that you can receive, which your IRA can receive uh, into that, <clears throat> into in that deal without violating state lending laws. Now these vary from every state to state. So there are 50 wonderful flavors in the United States about usury. So making sure that you don't violate that is always good. Now, granted, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be, uh, you know, it's not going to behoove you to charge something that is unpayable by the borrower. Uh, but, you know, obviously, if you've worked out some type of deal where, you know, maybe there's equity participation, maybe the uh, usury laws compound that and say, hey, if you're getting a portion of the uh, profits at sale, then maybe you uh, have to calculate that as interest on the note. And even though maybe the note only has maybe three or 0% interest with equity participation, and I'll get into what equity participation means in a second, then you might violate usury if the deal goes, um, you know, re really well. So just keep in mind that it's always good to check with uh, either an attorney or an experienced investor in the state that you're looking to lend in. If you don't have a lot of experience in that state to make sure that the terms of the note that you put together don't violate any applicable laws within that state because the last thing you want to do is hit a home run and then get called for a foul when you're trying to slide into home by the umpire. So just making sure that you follow all of the applicable uh, state lending laws and things like that are very important when it comes to putting together a note, especially for your IRA. So you get to choose again, the how long your money's out, amount borrowed, the interest rate, if you want to have equity participation, if you want to have um, a different uh, payment schedule. So maybe you want to allow the borrower to pay quarterly or biannually or annually or whatever you want to do. You get to choose all of these different aspects when it comes to putting together a deal for an IRA, especially when it comes to notes. Now, it's a little bit harder to do that with things like real estate. If you bought it directly, you know, leases typically, you know, are fairly standardized and, you know, there are a lot of laws and different things in place that affect um, landlord tenancy. But with a note, if you're just lending someone money, you really get to kind of customize everything to your desire and whatever, you know, not only fits your criteria the best, but what also works into what the borrower needs as well, because the, the better you can make the deal for both parties, the more likelihood that it will succeed in the end. So if it's a good fit for the borrower and it's a good financial deal for your IRA, then if the rising tide's raising all those ships, then it's going to be a much better um, end result for everyone typically. So the good thing I like to make sure that people understand is that with notes, whether it's unsecured, secured, whether you've written in all sorts of crazy things into the note, is that you get to customize this stuff to the finest degree that you would like. Now you can, again, do it very standardized. You can, you know, be as exotic as you'd like, but just understanding that, you know, you do have a lot of 
um, degree of flexibility with this is important. But with that flexibility do come some constraints. You need to understand that if you're going to be lending people money with an IRA, there are some IRS regulations that you do have to be cognizant of. Now, these aren't inherently very strenuous things to keep in mind, but they are things that you do need to make sure that you um, you know abide by so that you don't run afoul of the IRS because you know, let's face it, the IRS isn't exactly known for their caring and understanding demeanor when people run afoul of them. But the basics when it comes to lending out of an IRA and rules that you need to be aware of are really mainly centered on, at least from the IRS side, uh, usury, again, is going to be state by state. But with regard to regulations that you need to be aware of with um, the IRS are mainly centered on whom you can and can't lend to. So the easy way to think about this is that anyone directly in your nuclear family, so mother, father, son, daughter, spouse, if you look at your family tree and look directly up and down, those are the people you can't directly lend your IRA to and that you can't borrow, you can't basically transact any IRA monies within that direct lineage. So if that is something that you're interested in doing, um, unfortunately, you can't lend to those people. However, the IRS in whatever infinite wisdom that they came up with this rule states that siblings are not dis considered disqualified individuals. So if you have a brother or a sister or a stepbrother or a niece or a nephew or someone directly outside of that direct lineal uh, family tree, you can lend them money if you'd like to. Now, granted, you also need to weigh the pros and cons of dealing with family. And if you have a deal that goes south, it's probably going to make for a relatively awkward Thanksgiving dinner. So making sure that you're comfortable with who you're lending money to, and also the fact that, you know, that certainly can be something that uh, can, can affect uh, familiar relationships. But if you have been doing business with these people outside of IRAs, and you just want to maybe get your IRAs working in the market because of how expensive that uh, the the institutional money is getting and there's more opportunity for you, just understanding whom you can and can't deal with directly is very important. Now, another thing to understand, especially if you're going to be doing secured lending, is that there are certain things that IRAs cannot actually hold. Now, with that said, if you have security on a note and it's something, let's say, like a uh, rare piece of artwork or something that is uh, deriving its value from collectability, then you're going to have some issues when it comes to any potential foreclosure action because the IRA just holds a secured interest in it and doesn't own that asset directly. I've seen it in the past where clients have secured a note by things that couldn't directly be held by the IRA. So rare bottles of wine, artwork, things like that. Uh, now, granted, these are definitely a very niche uh, of the market, but it's important to understand holistically where these kind of rules do and don't lie is that, you know, you certainly could potentially do some of this stuff, but it may not necessarily crop up. Now, another thing to understand is that you can't personally finance a deal with your IRA. So if you're looking to buy property, you can't use your IRA for a down payment. You can't use your IRA to hold the paper on it. So just like with the nuclear family, you can't self-deal as well. So you have to make sure you stay out of the realm of self-dealing and within that nuclear family, stay away from that as well. Uh, let's see. Uh, now, types of private lending. You have really kind of 
uh, an infinite amount of options when it comes to, again, how you customize this. But just going over some of the most basic things and what you can write into them, you have traditional mortgage lending, which is someone that wants to borrow money from you and you say, okay, I'm going to lend you this money, again, using your IRA, and the IRA is going to be the grantor on the mortgage, meaning that in the public record, there's going to be a secured, a secured interest recorded against the property, and that borrower is agreeing to repay that note. Now, you can do that as a 30-year, a 15-year note, a 5-1 adjustable rate note. You can do it as a balloon note. There's all sorts of different uh, ways that you can structure that. Now, again, you can be this secured or unsecured. Now, another way that people have been making a lot of money that I've seen, at least in you know the recent years that I've been doing this, is short-term or transactional funding. So people that need to make up, let's say, a deficit at closing or need to make up, uh, let's say, a payable to uh, some contractors uh, in order to be able to clear uh, title for closing something, people that do short-term and transactional funding uh, is something that you can definitely do with an IRA. And with the fact that this is a very quick turnaround, the tax rates on doing something like that personally can be rather substantial since it has to, you know, since it would typically be claimed as uh, regular income, since it'd be a short-term capital gain, then doing it within an IRA really starts to make a lot of sense and really starts to be a, of a pretty big benefit. So short-term and transactional funding, definitely something that has cropped up in more recent years that has, uh, you know, definitely been of a great benefit to some clients that have done it successfully. Again, you don't have to have secure on a note, you can do these things unsecured if you want. Granted, it is a significantly higher degree of risk if you are going to be doing unsecured lending. Now, I've alluded to something called equity participation throughout kind of this, this uh, brief talk, and it's something I want to bring up a little bit more in detail. Now, equity participation is really kind of a cool way to do uh, lending with an IRA or just in general if you're going to be lending to someone that maybe uh, needs to use more of the money that is borrowed. Um, for the particular project to get it ready for sale, then wouldn't maybe necessitate the ability of them to make regular payments on the property. Now, again, this is going to come with its own kind of set of risks and things that you're going to need to examine. But essentially, the way equity participation works in a, in a 30,000 foot view is that you agree to lend someone money. And let's just say for argument's sake that in this case, it's going to be a secured mortgage. So you agree to lend them a mortgage on the purchase of a property. Now, let's say the property is $100,000 and you lend them $80,000 um, to buy the property. And uh, they, they essentially are going to need the majority of that money to do the rehab. They're putting up a lot of money for the purchase. They just need $80,000 essentially as a, a flipping loan. But the, the property is purchased cash outright, and you're just going to be holding the paper on the property. So instead of agreeing that they're going to make, let's say, monthly principal and interest payments, uh, at a certain interest rate, what I've seen in the past is that there has been an agreed zero, there's been essentially a 0% interest note rate on the note with the consideration being given instead of interest on the note is that let's say 30% of the profits at sale being given to the lender in lieu of a principal and interest payment. So no payments on the note, no interest on the note, but 30% of the profits at sale, uh, plus the underlying basis on the note. So in this case, if you lent the person $80,000 and they sold the, the, they sold the property for a $100,000 profit, you would get back your $80,000 plus $33,000. So you get back 
the 80 plus $33,000, which is the 33, which is the um, uh, one third of the profits of the sale of the property. So there's a lot of different interesting ways that you can do this. Equity participation uh, is kind of one of the cooler ways that I've seen people uh, make money and allow people that need to borrow the money more access to that capital without as much of a worry of having to make a particular uh, let's say principal and interest payment each month, allowing them to use more of the money that they borrowed to more quickly uh, acquire and uh, finish projects. So, kind of a cool way to go about it. And again, just a just a way to uh, you know determine better determine your destiny when it comes to private lending and making sure that you know whatever deal you're structuring works best for you. So again, some of the benefits of doing this is that you get to act as a bank and determine the terms for the note that you're going to be lending on. Uh, you get to set the rate at which your IRA will grow and your retirement plan in general. Uh, typically, when you do this, there's less liability than owning real estate directly in an IRA. Uh, these types of assets can be very low maintenance, meaning that when essentially after you lend someone money, there's really not a whole lot to do, uh, except, you know, for the for the risk of sounding corny, you know, sit back and collect your cash. Uh, you know, everything is going good with this until it isn't is kind of an, a, a fortunate and unfortunate aspect of, of lending is that so long as that the person is the borrower is making their payments, there's really nothing else you have to do. Um, unfortunately, if they stop making their payments at when, you know, it's either <laughs> all or nothing kind of with lending is that's when, you know, there is a particular issue. But unlike with, uh, let's say, owning a piece of real estate, where maybe the tenants are a real headache, but they pay their rent on time, you know, at least you get that benefit of, you know, getting your income, but having to deal with uh, pain in the butt tenants can obviously be a um, be kind of a drag on the investment in general. But with uh, a mortgage, you know, or a note in general, you just, so long as you're getting your payments, that's really it. There's really not anything else you need to do. You don't need to worry about paying property taxes. You don't need to worry about troublesome tenants, uh, the midnight calls for a broken water heater or air conditioning going down. It's, you know, set it and forget it. For the most part, granted, there is the potential to make a little bit less money if there's a large appreciable gain in the value of the property, but you can also hedge against that if you're looking at different strategies. Using things like equity participation can allow you to claw back some of that equity or that appreciable equitable gain in the value of the property if you're doing that. But again, you know, you do have some trade-offs in doing that. Typically, the borrowers are going to want a little bit more favorable terms on it, and uh, you know, you might have to, uh, you know, obviously expose yourself to to the market swings and if it goes down and the property doesn't sell for as much or or the like then you know you might not necessarily have made as much money as you thought you know if your money's tied up for let's say a year or two and the market takes a downturn and you only make what would have appreciably been let's say three percent on your money that was tied up then obviously that's a bad deal but at least in the past 10 years you know these things have been uh, you know, hitting very well uh, for a lot of clients. But again, that's no indicative. That's not indicative of future performance. And you always need to do your due diligence and understand the market that you're lending in and the people that you're lending to to make sure that you don't get burned on a particular deal. So that's really all that I have for y'all today. I just want to kind of bring attention to the fact that, you know, with 
money getting significantly more expensive on the institutional side of things, that the opportunity is going to be out there for people to make a good amount of money uh, in the alternative markets and things like private lending with retirement plans. So if you have questions about this kind of stuff or you want to learn a little bit more, always feel free to reach out to us. I am always happy to dig into this stuff. Private lending has been one of those things that uh, when I got into this industry about 10 years ago that I really didn't realize how creative you could get with it. You know, I just thought it was kind of uh, as simple as just saying, hey, here, I'm going to give you some money and you're going to repay it. No, it is uh, an extremely uh, in-depth, complicated, but but I shouldn't say complicated. I should say it's a very uh, opportunistic market insofar as that there are so many different ways to structure and be successful with private lending, that there is a fit for everyone out there. You don't have to be complex with it. You can be very straightforward. Or if you like to get complex and get into the real nitty gritty of doing very uh, highly sophisticated deals, there is the options for that as well, all while maintaining relatively low liability exposure and mitigating risk with security and real estate. So a lot of really cool stuff that can be examined here. Um, for this. With that said, this has been another edition of the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. My name is Alex Perney, and I hope you all have a great day. Thank you for tuning in to the Alternative Investing Advantage podcast. Tune in next week for more investing tips and strategies. Want to hear more episodes of the Alternative Investing Advantage? Search podcast at advantaira.com and subscribe.